My darling, dear, beautiful Annie, forgive me all the things I could not tell you. Please don't hate me and try not to despair your losses. You will see in the end that they were worth it. Our sacrifice will pale next to the rewards. Love, Mommy. Here we are, Hereditary. This is a movie that I could not wait to see in the theaters once I watched the trailer for it, and it is a movie that stunned me while I was watching it and uh, had me thinking quite a bit after I watched it. Now, as you know, I've seen this movie more than once. You know that if you listen to the episode leading up to this episode, because we watched the trailer, and... I have had a lot of time to think about Hereditary. There is plenty going on in this movie. Now, one thing I'm seeing from people on social media is that they love this movie right up until the final act. Those last 30 minutes or so, they don't love. I love the last 30 minutes of this movie. So I'm a, I'm a bit in the opposite camp as far as that's concerned. And uh, I, I dug it. I liked the way this entire film played out. What excellent performances. And I'm going to come out of the gate and say this right now. Tony Collette as Annie is probably one of the finest horror performances that I can ever remember seeing. And I've seen quite a few. I, there's none that really ring out to me as better than this one because, man, Tony Collette is a great actress. I think that she crushes this role. I think that she is so talented. I remember United States of Tara, was it? Was just a a glimpse into how good Toni Collette was. I know she's been in some other things. I I haven't seen a lot with her in it, but I did watch United States of Tara. And of course, I just watched Hereditary for the second time. And I got to say that this, this performance is unbelievably good. And I think all of the performances are really good. And you know, Alex Wolf as Peter, Gabriel Byrne as Steve. Alex Wolf is good, man. He he does this thing a little bit, which I hate. He's like, nah, he cries like that. It's wicked annoying. It's as annoying as it just sounded with me. It's like a really bad wailing, like a forced cry. But other than that, I think he does a really good job. I just I can't abide the the wailing. And uh, boy, when Tony Collette wails, yowza! It sounds like. Uh, somebody's suffering a most unimaginable pain. So unimaginable pain, that's something that this movie does very well. And unimaginable pain is something that I'm going to talk about as it relates to the film Hereditary and some of the other ideas and themes that they decided to go with in this movie. And by they, I mean Ari Aster, um, or Ari Aster, excuse me. I guess his directorial debut, I guess... I didn't realize that. I was just clicking on his IMDb profile, and I guess this is uh, his first his first feature film. I know he's done a bunch of shorts before this. So I think that's uh, a pretty impressive way to start things off, which brings me to an important point about the entire idea of the Real Quick Podcast, which is, of course, just to cover recently available movies to rent or buy. And I do claim that there are spoilers, and if you listen to the last couple episodes, I do talk about a couple of things where I don't actually spoil the endings of those films. And I think I'm probably going to do that here as well, which is not spoil the ending of this film. However, 
There is a major spoiler in this movie that occurs, I want to say, pretty early. I think it's in the first 35 minutes of the movie. It is. I'm scrubbing now. It's at the 35-minute mark. So if you... I mean, it's it's a gigantic spoiler in the first 35 minutes of this movie. It's going to be hard for me not to talk about it, so I'm just going to warn you right now that if you don't want to get a major spoiler that occurs in the first 35 minutes of this movie, then you should stop listening to this podcast now and come back, okay? Because there's going to be no way for me to, to really talk about this movie without that first major spoiler. What I won't do is spoil the end of this movie. What I might do is, in the post-credits of this episode, get into the very final part of this movie, the very short third act, and just describe what's going on and lay it out. Because if you've only seen this movie once, you're probably still reeling. You're probably still wondering what happened in this movie. What, what the fuck? You may have read articles. It's, I, I don't know. But what I'm going to do is talk a little bit about what's going on at the end of this movie in the post-credits of this particular episode, okay? That said, prepare for a gigantic inbound spoiler, okay? If you're still here, here it is. Well, the little kid that you see on the front of the cover of this movie gets fucking killed in the first 35 minutes in the movie in the most unbelievably brutal and remarkable way. And I had no idea it was coming. Because I only saw the preview, because I knew that the little girl was a creep show, because I saw her image on the front of the DVD poster or the movie poster, I thought to myself, this creepy little kid is going to be one of the focal points of the film. No. She dies. She gets her head broken off her neck. That's the best way to say it. Ripped off, rended off her neck, smashed, crushed off her head, off her shoulders, by way of hanging her head out of a window while her brother is driving and her face hitting a telephone pole and flying off of her body. Holy shit, it's a serious, serious moment in this movie that had the entire theater gasping. That is a ballsy thing to do. Number one, killing kids is rough, okay? It's hard to kill kids in movies and have people still sticking around emotionally and in, in, in staying invested in the movie. That was intense. I did not expect that at all, okay? And, it's, and in such a brutal fashion, especially the way the movie was marketed where you thought the girl was a major part of the movie. That's crazy, right? Hanging her head out the window because she's having an allergic reaction gets her head smashed off of a pole. Now, I wanted to put that right in your face up front because I want to talk about some major bullet points in this movie. As you know, this is not a deep dive. We don't go scene by scene. If you want that, tune into the Science Fiction Film Podcast in October when we plan to cover this particular film as one of our bonus episodes. So you might need to be a member to get access to it. We haven't decided if we're going to give it to everybody or just members, but keep your eyes peeled for a good two, two and a half hour episode on this particular movie. But, Let's stick with this one for now, right? And that's this. This movie is set up in two distinct ways. And one of the things I love about this movie is that up until the end, you're not exactly sure what's happening with the main character in Annie. Okay? You, you don't know. 
you, you can see her starting to become unhinged as a result of the losses. And you can see that it's starting to affect her. And of course, her family around her, most notably her husband, Steve, played brilliantly by Gabriel Byrne. And of course, her son, Peter, played by Alex Wolf. So the gist of the film is it opens with the mother dying. Annie's mother's dying, dead. Off camera, she dies. And she leaves behind this weirdo note. I read you that note at the beginning of the, of, the, of the episode. So if you forgot it, go back and listen to it. But it's essentially her saying, oh, the sacrifices that your, your losses and all that stuff are going to be pale in comparison to all the rewards you're going to get. Which she didn't leave in an obvious place for her daughter. It just was something that her daughter, Annie, stumbled upon. So the mom's dead they live in this house out in the middle of the woods somewhere. And there's this guilt that permeates this movie with Annie. Annie feels like she should feel worse for her mother being dead. So Annie is guilty that she doesn't feel more that her mother is dead. That is some fascinating shit. And I also think it's some very real shit. You know, I just heard Chuck Palahniuk on the Joe Rogan experience, and he was talking about how, I don't know if it was his mother or his grandmother or his father, I don't remember, but somebody he cared for, that he was caring for, that had, hand, that had cancer, that died, he felt a sense of relief. And he said how much, how much guilt he felt over that actual idea. And it's, you know, that's just reality. That's the human reality of it. And it's funny because we see that in this movie, which is Annie... Feels like she should feel worse. She literally gives the most dispassionate eulogy you've ever heard. And, and then she says, you know, I loved my mother. She says it so clinically. I don't know anybody who cares about anyone who could stand up and do a eulogy and not lose their shit. But Tony seems to navigate it quite well. And things start to go from here. One of the things this film does is it sets up these grim portents, right? This these escalating situations that start to show you that things aren't as they seem. There is always a sense of dread, like black clouds that gather over this family. The whole time you're watching this movie, you feel like there is clouds just rolling in, sitting over the house, and just permeating the mood with utter despair and utter dread. And the music evokes that so well. While you're watching this movie, you are tense because you know something bad is bubbling under the surface of all of these things that are happening. Now, under the surface is important because on the surface, you have a film that if you take the horror element out of it, could be a dramatic movie about mental illness and loss. That's the surface. Beneath the surface, we start to realize that all of the things that are happening on the surface are a result of the things happening under the surface. And that's clever. It's not just, oh, she's being misinterpreted as crazy because of, because it, coincidentally, it is, she is being thought of as crazy by design by the forces at work in this movie, okay? The forces at work in this movie and how they put their power over these people, it's 
fucking fascinating. You could have just watched a movie. You probably could have chopped 40 minutes out of it and watched a very dramatic tale about loss and reconciliation and guilt. And Tony Collette could have sold that entire performance and you could have made a movie called Hereditary with a much different vibe. And that's clever because you're smuggling in this other thing. And when you smuggle in this other thing, you have to remind us that there are grim things looming on the horizon. And they pace it in a way to where you feel that the minute you sit down to watch this movie, immediately, when you get to a eulogy. The the first image of the movie is a small a small title card and it is a uh what do you call those an obituary an obituary for ellen which is tony's mom and it's just talking about ellen whatever the hell her name is i forget ellen something or other ellen lay right l-e-i-g-h i think is her name and you you go so when you open a movie with an obituary in this dreadful music and these dripping thematic things and mood that just permeates the entire thing. And then you start giving us this red herring. And the red herring in this case is the daughter, Charlie. Because the whole time you're watching this, you think, oh my God, is the mother dead? Is she not dead? There's things going on here. Charlie's so weird. She does this clicking noise with her tongue, right? She always does that. She always makes that noise and it's so creepy. And I know it doesn't sound great on a podcast, but I had to do it anyway. And she says weird things. And we, we start to see this recurring imagery. There are clues. There's the payment, nex- uh, payment necklace, right? Just Google payment, all right? Google payment. There's uh, this weird lady touches lips or liquid to the grandma's corpse at the funeral. Annie struggles with her sadness and not having any there's drawings of grandma in the casket from charlie the kid right there's big clues that play towards the end of the movie oh she wanted you to be a boy annie says to charlie who's gonna take care of me when you die charlie says to mommy the kids never cried annie finds the letter we're talking about right all of these things start to stack up and they start to Build another expectation in this movie, which is something else is happening here and it's not good and it's going to be bad. We hear a tale in one of the classrooms. I think it's, uh, I think Peter's in class and they're talking about Heracles and his lack of choice and the tragedy of this and how he's just thrust into this situation and all these things happen and he never really had a choice in any of these matters. There was nothing he could do. It was predetermined. That is a major theme for this movie. Charlie has this moment where she cuts the head off of a pigeon. All of these, a dead pigeon, mind you. (laughs) She doesn't kill the pigeon. You know, the pigeon flies and slams into the glass, a harbinger of of bad news, perhaps. And uh, Charlie cuts the pigeon's head off. We see this weird woman with blonde hair waving at Charlie from across the street. We don't know who she is. We find out Annie's mother's grave has been desecrated. Annie doesn't know about this either because Steve takes the phone call. And all of these things start building and building. Meanwhile, 
you have the other tale of this movie, which is the, the mental health piece, which is we see Annie going to a grief counseling session. And she's fantastic here. We learn about all of the mental health that issues that occur in the family. This scene is important because it gives you clues to the end of the film. Because one of the things you're always asking yourself right up until a certain point in this movie, you're asking yourself, is, is Annie, Tony Collette, is Annie going crazy or is something weird happening here? What is going on? And then it becomes pretty clear what's going on with, with shocking moments. But in the grief counseling scene, the reason you, the reason you might think, wow, this explains Annie's behavior. She comes from a long line of people who are fucking crazy. Sure. But after you see the ending, maybe that's not the case. And that's what I love about this flick, right? Father starved himself to death. Brother hung himself. Um, she kept her mother away from her son, but she got her hooks in my daughter. I feel, I feel uh, blamed. Um, so we learn that she comes from a, a long line of people with problems and, and how her mother has this obsession with Charlie, the daughter. Hmm. Weird, right? Because we know what happens to Charlie. Already spoiled that. She gets her head knocked off by a pole because of poor driving. And all of these things start to build towards the end, okay? We see always, always we're waiting. Every scene that opens, every tracking shot, every slow zoom, everything, every focus, every unfocus, moments where Annie thinks she sees her mother in the darkness of a room and she turns the light on and she's not there. All of these little things start to build and build and build. And then at the 35-minute mark, when they whack Charlie, and you think Annie's never going to recover from this, how is she ever going to recover from this? And it's basically the biggest moment, and I would say the end of the first act of the movie. Because from here, we just get a lot more escalation. We introduce a new character named Joan, played by Anne Dowd. Anne Dowd is great. She's such a great actress. She crushes it in um, The Leftovers, right? She's great. She plays Patty in The Leftovers, and she's phenomenal. Anne Dowd is great, great in this movie. And it starts to go south rather quickly, okay? Annie's behavior starts to shift. The whole time you're watching this movie for the first 35 minutes, you're thinking to yourself, What's going on with this weird kid, Charlie? This, this kid's acting weird. I think the mother's haunting them. That's the feeling you get. And then after Charlie's death, you start to focus on Annie and the way she starts to unravel. And everything we know up to this point, we start to realize, wow, is Annie losing her mind? Again, this is one of the central questions throughout the entire film. Is Annie losing her mind? becomes the focus. She makes, uh, she, she does this thing where she makes miniatures, like these houses with these detailed miniatures and rooms and living rooms and bedrooms. And she makes a hospice and all this shit. And she makes one of the accident scene in which Charlie died, the pole, the car, the literal head on the ground covered in blood. And the husband is like, what the fuck are you doing? Do you want your son to find that? And she's like, what? And the way she plays it off, 
and this is where Tony Collette's so good in this movie, the way she plays off, the way she almost becomes indignant at this suggestion that what you're doing right now is fucked up makes you start to question her sanity. You know, because she denies it. If she would have said, oh my God, I know you're right. This is dumb and threw it away. You would go, okay, she, she had a moment here, right? She had a moment here. That's totally fine. No worries. But the fact that she almost is indignant as if Steve is wrong to bring it up. Wow. That is out there. That is when you start to go, hmm, I have a funny feeling that this lady is losing her fucking mind. Things get worse. She has it out. There's this, there's this amazing scene that you could have plucked out of this movie and put in any movie. And it's when, when Annie has a argument with her son, Peter. And it blows up. And she is saying, I can't be there for you. And it's, it's a, a, a wonderful performance. I mean... It's one of the many shining moments from Tony Collette in this movie. But in this particular scene, you could have, this could have been in any dramatic film that was not a horror film. And it could have been just her trying to cope with the loss of her daughter, knowing that her son was somehow responsible. And then the son turns it around on her and says, Why'd you make me take her to the party? And she has no answer. And she has to walk away. And Steve has to put an end to the argument because it's getting ugly and people are taking shots at each other. And it's just real family drama, real deep, heavy, tearing, yelling family drama. And it's funny because you might be thinking if you haven't seen this movie, well, does that somehow affect the movie overall? Does, does it seem out of place? Does the horror part of the movie seem like when, window dressing? And my answer to that is absolutely not. You know, sometimes you'll watch a movie and you'll be like, wow, is this a comedy is it a horror film? It, why are such big tonal shifts? That isn't the case in Hereditary. Hereditary does not have tonal shifts. Hereditary sticks to the dread pretty faithfully for the whole movie. And it adds in the dramatic tension and release and the tension and the release of the entire idea of the dread surrounding this whole thing. But you always get the idea that something bigger is looming. You know, A24 did The Witch, and we're going to be covering The Witch on the Science Fiction Film Podcast. And one of the things you always felt like when you were watching The Witch was, this movie, something big is looming under the surface always. There is a dreadful thing occurring in this movie, and even though it's slowly unraveling and slowly building and slowly getting there, we just know something big and terrifying is going to happen. And it does. And you feel the same way in this movie. So that's one of the things I love about this movie. And it does, it is. There are some similarities between this and The Witch. In terms of that, you always feel like something is looming on the horizon. On the horizon. And then when it finally arrives, it is unreal. It's unbelievably terrifying. So to spin this towards the third act, you got a lot of things that happen, right? I'm not going to get too much into the plot stuff, but... This character, Joan, played by Ann Dowd, sees, sees Annie coming out of a, a, an art supply store and they say, hi, oh, I haven't seen you in a while. I haven't seen you in the group. Oh, I got the craziest news to tell you. It's unbelievable. And Ann Dowd starts pitching this idea. I, I'm a medium. I, I had somebody come to my house. It's, uh, 
I got to talk to my grandson because one of the stories that Ann Dowd's character Joan tells in the film is that she lost her her son or her daughter and the granddaughter together at once, which is massively brutal. And she goes on to talk about it. She goes on to say, so she, so in other words, she can relate to, she can relate to um, Annie's pain from losing Charlie, right? And she convinces her that she had a seance and made contact with her grandson. And at first, and this is another great moment from Tony Collette, she just doesn't, she doesn't want to get into it. But Annie is so good at playing, uh, Tony's so good at playing Annie as this emotionally vulnerable person who's seeking peace and answers that despite your rational thought process, despite the fact that we know Annie at the beginning is seemingly rational and self-aware and not somebody that you think would be easily duped by such a thing, because of the desperation in where she is and the way she acts in the movie, the way Tony Collette acts in the movie, you totally buy that she's willing to hear Joan out. And that has a lot to do with Ann Dowd's portrayal of, of Joan as a very comforting person, a very maternal person, somebody that cares and hugs and is and wants to give you tea and give you a blankie, right? You get that impression from her. So when she comes to her with this idea, it's a little much. Lo and behold, they that Annie witnesses something in the presence of Joan that convinces her that this can be done. And that's when she does it at her own house after begging Steve in, in um, Peter to participate. And it's at that moment where all fucking hell breaks loose. Once the seance comes, things escalate very quickly. Okay. More clues are found. Uh, there's a terrible smell in the house. Something's writing in Charlie's notebook. Annie sees images of um, images of her son being written in Charlie's notebook by themselves. Uh, the dog gets a little weird. There's drawings of terrified, screaming Peter. Right? Annie's arm starts to burn when she tries to burn this notebook, and and things get crazy. Joan at one point sees Peter in this amazing reveal, where Annie goes to Joan's house. And, and looks for Joan and she doesn't see her and the camera pans into Joan's apartment and you just see all this cultish shit. You know, a pentagram, little figurines, a burning thing, this symbol that keeps recurring in the movie that we learn is a symbol, symbol of payment, right? This demon. And at one point, Joan tries to yell at Peter. She says like, Xantony, Dagdony, Epigaron or some shit. And she's yelling, get out, Peter, get out. And he's shouting at me. He's like, what the fuck? Because he's at lunch and outside at school. And, and here's Joan across the street. And things just get bananas from here, okay? Things get totally bananas from here. And they play up into the third act. And in the third act, you get a pretty substantial reveal. Again, I don't want to make the reveal here. I'm not going to spoil the third act and what goes down right now, right here. But if you stay tuned for after the credits, I want to talk about the third act of this movie and kind of what happened and why I think it's super cool. So I will leave with this. One of the best parts of this movie is the ability to take two distinct premises, which is a horror movie in this family drama about loss and blend them into one movie that doesn't seem to be atonal. 
those tonal shifts seem to work. They seem to click together. They seem to be in lockstep because there's one thing that permeates the entire film, which is the sense of dread. And when you see the horror things happening, the grim importance, as it were, unfolding before your eyes, leading up to big reveals, those make sense in the context of the framework, as well as the idea of this dramatic situation playing out with Annie, who loses her daughter and what that means. Wild shit. I'm going to go on, on the record right now and say, if you want to hit this movie with my scale, which is hated it, didn't like it, liked it, loved it, I'm going to say I love this movie. I love movies like this. I love movies like this. And Hereditary is no exception. And I'm telling you, I don't know if you're going to find a better performance in a horror film than you are with Tony Collette's portrayal of Annie in Hereditary. Which brings me to the next movie we are going to watch on the Real Quick Podcast. So, I've been thinking about this quite a bit. What did I want to do next? What movie did I want to get into next? What would be fun? I don't know. There was a lot of different options out there for me. And I, I was giving it some thought, looking around. I went on, um, I, I usually go on iTunes and just see, okay, what's new? What's out there? What's been going on? What's fun? What looks like it could be interesting to talk about or at least amusing to talk about? So... <laughs> I made a decision that I was going to get really silly and watch a really goofy movie. So what we're going to do is we're going to cover a movie called The Neon Demon. Now, The Neon Demon is from 2016, so it's not super new, but it was, it was given to me by a couple of listeners uh, and uh, in, in one uh, LSG Media Mem- uh, faithful, I should say, John Butters, one of our producers over here, and an occasional co-host. Um, but he said, you know, Nicholas, Nicholas Winding Refn, I don't know how to say his name, but the guy that did Drive, kick-ass movie, right? Did this movie called The Neon Demon. And it looks so fucking ridiculous that I thought, let's change of pace off of Hereditary. Let's change gears a little and let's watch this crazy-ass movie called Neon Demon. So that's what we're going to do. So let's get up the trailer and have a watch for this ridiculous movie called Neon Demon. By the way, before I even get to the trailer, here's, what to, here's to know what this movie's about, according to iTunes. When aspiring model Jessie moves to Los Angeles, her youth and vitality are devoured by a group of beauty-obsessed women who will use any means necessary to get what she has. Oh, boy. That's what it is, everybody. That's what it is. Let's have a listen. I see 20 or 30 girls come in here every day from small towns with big dreams. Some girls crack under the pressure. You, you're going to be great. feel like I walk into a room it's like in the middle of winter you're the sun it's everything you know what my mother used to call me dangerous 
Well, <laughs> man, I have no idea what to expect from that movie. I mean, it is a pretty looking movie. And I don't just mean because of the ladies, but the color palette, it looks it looks cool. Like it looks visually cool. I got a sneaking feeling it's going to be a piece of shit. But we're going to have fun talking about it either way. My expectations for this movie, I didn't even realize this now, but it makes sense. It's in the horror genre. So maybe I'm not switching gears as much as I thought I was. This is a horror film, The Neon Demon, which is hilarious. So I guess we're going from horror to horror. But this one looks like it's probably something I'm going to make fun of more than celebrate like I'm doing with Hereditary. And uh, we're looking to do that this week sometime. Probably Tuesday. So I'm recording Hereditary on Tuesday, the 28th. I'll probably try to record The Neon Demon on Thursday. And if not, maybe sometime over the weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, somewhere in there. But uh, all right. Well, thank you guys very much for tuning in to another episode of Real Quick, an LSG Media Movie Podcast. I'm going to bid you good people adieu. But please note that after the credits in this episode, I'm going to spoil the end of Hereditary. So do yourselves a favor and make sure you shut it off before then if you haven't seen Hereditary and you think you want to see Hereditary. Okay? Okay. Thank you, guys. See you later. All right, let's talk Act 3, Hereditary, the big closeout, the big reveal. Again, you've been warned. But here's why this movie kicks so much ass, and it's because of this third act and how the entire movie plays into the third act, right? And it's this. Annie's mother, Ellen, is the leader of a cult, or a coven, if it please. This cult worships the demon called Payman. Now, Payman, if you do a little Google searching on, you're going to learn a little bit about the demon Payman. Uh, wealth and knowledge, essentially bestowing powers on the faithful servants who serve Payman. What's awesome about Hereditary is the idea of a cult that you don't know is manipulating and pushing the action until the end of the movie when it reveals itself, thus being a very effective and secretive cult. That's what's cool about it. Most cults in movies aren't, quote, secret. They're actively recruiting. They're actively, you know, reaching their tendrils out into the, into the social stratosphere and corrupting the youth and you know, tempting them with drugs or sex or power or, or even threatening them. In this, it's not. It's total manipulation behind the scenes. And that's something I just couldn't wait to tell you guys. I couldn't wait to tell you that one of the coolest things about this movie is that right there. When you start to look back on the film, you realize that the leader of this cult, Ellen, Annie's mother, has been for a long time trying to bring payment back into the world trying to crown him. So we get the impression that when we think back on Annie talking about the other deaths in the family surrounding the mother, when, when Annie says in that meeting, as I said in, earlier in the episode, the thing about trying to put people in me, when the brother said or something like that, the whole time I'm of the opinion that Ellen, Annie's mom, has been trying to put payment into people And when it doesn't work, those people end up dead or when it's not going well. Or there's another part of me that thinks it's possible she's just sacrificing people to Payman until Payman can get into the proper host, which of course is Peter, not Charlie. And this cult has 
worshipers. And one of them is Joan. And after Ellen's death, Joan surreptitiously and covertly is trying to make sure that the vision that Ellen put forward about this payment thing comes to fruition. Again, that's one of the coolest parts of the movie, the fact that the cult works behind the scenes and we don't know who they are until the end. Awesome, right? Because as I said earlier, most cult movies don't work that way. You know who they are right away. Now, what makes this fascinating and also scary is that in the beginning, Charlie is payment. We never really meet Charlie, do we? We never really meet the daughter, Charlie. She is payment from jump. And Payman wants to be in a male. That's one of the things we read when we watch the movie. There's clues about how he would prefer to be in a male. And he's not crazy about being in Charlie, which is why Charlie ends up dead, which is why everyone else ends up dead at the end of this movie. Because when Annie saws her own head off, when Annie gets afflicted, right? Joan tricks Annie to do the seance. She convinces her, oh, to do this. And what that does is, is it allows Payman to make contact with Annie. Now that Charlie's dead, Payman's kind of floating around. He needs to make, he, he wants to get at Peter, right? Ellen's convinced us that he wants to get at Peter. The cult wants him in Peter. He's the rightful male host, okay? Not Charlie. He doesn't want to hang out with a girl. He's a sexist demon. So what happens is once Charlie dies, payment's sort of floating around and that's the seance. That's why Joan's so adamant about the seance. Oh, you got to do it. You got to do it. Convinces Annie to do the seance, inviting payment into the house. Next thing you know, payment's killing the husband. Payment's killing Annie. Payment finally makes its way into Peter, thus bringing about the victory at the end for the payment cult. (laughs) That's what's so crazy about the movie. Evil wins. The cult gets their guy, and that's really cool, right? I know some people are a little put off by Annie's floating body, but no, man, that's the demon. The demon's here. He's in his preferred host. He has his powers, and he can use those powers against the world of men, and he can dominate them with his otherworldly, demonic, and dark magic, and that's what's happening here. And this cult worships him. They arrange these people and their headless corpses around this thing, and they crown him and it's crazy. It goes back to the, the to the Heracles thing in the beginning, which is, you know, the tragedy is, is he never had a choice and it plays in right at the end of the movie here. And it's just so fucking cool. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that because some of you might've seen it and might be a little confused, but watch the movie two times. I'm, I'm telling you, if you've only seen it once, watch it again, knowing that there is a cult behind the whole thing and it's centered around this demon payment. And that's what makes it so effing cool, right? That's what makes it so creepy. And that's it. So the moral of the story, guys, is just remember that evil wins, okay? The evil demon-worshipping cult wins. And your family was sacrificed by the grandmother for the demon. So keep your eyes on grandma, okay? That's my advice. We'll see you guys next time.